I don't feel myself very confident or capable to write these books. I mean, I, I have friends that are writers and they're brilliant. I mean, they're just, you know, I'm in awe of what they do. But somehow when I sit down and put pencil to paper and I just dedicate whatever I do to the Lord, those promptings come of even to, down to the words in a paragraph, how to put them together and how to, you know, form those things. And so for me, it's it's just kind of an overwhelming, you know, all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole kind of thing. I, I just get those feelings all the time. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. And uh, as often happens, uh, our friends over at Deseret Book, they say, you know who you have to chat with. And I say, well, I I know I'm going to do this interview. So tell me who it is that I have to chat with. And they said, Gail Sears. Now that name may sound familiar to you and it may not. uh, But hopefully by the end of this, you're thinking, oh, I love Gail Sears. And also (laughs) can't wait to check out her latest book from Deseret Book. Gail, thanks for being here. You bet, Richard. Good to be with you. Now, uh, Gail and I, we tried to do this yesterday as she was up enjoying uh, not a leisurely day at a cabin, but kind of an escape uh, away at a cabin. Are you writing a a new project or or what were you escaping to and from? I, I am actually writing a new book, and that is one place where I can go to just kind of focus and have quiet and, you know, allow me to be creative. So that's what I was doing. Yeah. Your most recent published work is called the sister preachers. Correct. Uh, about, uh, and, and, and the way that, uh, that I appreciate your work as I've done a little research about you is that people, people say that you are the most researched or one of the most researched, um, and I don't want to say fiction writers because these are real people who you're writing about. But there is some narrative that you kind of infuse into these people's story. Explain that a little bit for me. Correct. Um, Well, historical fiction takes the actual occurrences of a time period or of a day or um, of a situation. And then you meld in with it fictional characters and fictional narrative about you know, what they would say, because so often we don't know what these characters would actually say in a situation. So it kind of brings them to life. So um, I do, I am tenacious about my research. When I'm going to do a book, uh, for example, my first book with Deseret Book was The Silence of God. And it's about the first LDS, first and only LDS family in Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution. Mm. Well, I took it upon myself at first, I thought I was not going to be able to find an LDS family in Russia during that time period, but I wanted to talk about communism and how it came into a society and totally ripped God out of their society. Hmm. So in my research, I was researching, researching, um, I found this family, the Lindelof family. Well, it takes a lot of research to dig in and then find uh, those kind of people. Plus, I did a lot of research about communism, about Russia. Um, My husband and I, my cute husband, George, (laughs) we we actually went to Russia to, I like to go to the places if I can Mm -hmm. to research because you eat the food and you walk the streets. So we did go to Russia and it was an eye opener. So that's kind of my system about researching is if I can find original sources, um, that's what I do. I love that. Like when I found George Q. Cannon's uh, journal about his mission in Hawaii, mm-hmm. I was it was like gold, you know. It was like <laughs> so, yeah. I I do a lot of research to make it authentic. Now I have to wonder, uh, it, with the research about uh, George Q. Cannon and Hawaii, was that a push by? Uh, your cute husband George to say, "Hey, you know what? I went to Russia with you. Can we can we set this historical book somewhere maybe a little nicer and go and try that food and try those places?" Oh man, that's a funny story because yes, we did go. We did go for a week together, and then I kicked him out <laughs> and spent another three weeks by myself. And he was like, "Oh man, you know, you get to stay in Hawaii." Literally, I was on the beach one day. 
Mm. that whole three weeks that I was by myself. So I'm like, you wouldn't have had much fun. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so let me ask you, and I could probably make my own assumptions about this, but I'd like to hear it from your mouth. Why, why so much research? Why does that matter so much to you that you get it as right as you can? Well, I, I think I owe something to my readers to when they're reading along that they know that they can trust that what I'm giving them is on the historical aspect is as genuine as possible so that they'll accept me weaving in a story and fictional characters and things like that. Um, so I, I think I owe it to my readership to do that. Mm -hmm. And what I do, Richard, is at the end of every chapter, I put end notes about my research and about things. And if something is a little skewed that I've done, I will mention that. I will say, you know, this, I had to tweak this a little just for the storyline or something. So they, they know that what I'm doing is they can trust it. Are you someone that when you're reading someone else's historical fiction or you're watching something on TV where it, it's a, a, a historical fiction sort of, you know, encapsulated in pictures and once they either say something or you see something that, you know, doesn't fit that time <laughs> that you just drop out and you're like, all right, what oh. is this? What are we doing here? No, I'm actually pretty, um, <laughs> pretty calm about that. If I get sucked up in the story, you know, if, if something happens that I go, ah, oh, that's not quite right. Mm -hmm. I I'll let it pass if I'm sucked up in the story. So if I'm not sucked up in the story, then I might take issue with it. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I happened to be watching a TV show last night where um, they made the very uh, clear reference to um, the game show where at the end they go, is that your final answer? Oh, and, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Was, and it was before that TV show, the show was set before that thing was out. And I was like, I can't watch this yeah, anymore. <laughs> I'm turning this off and I've got to move away. They didn't get their timeline right. Yeah. How dare they? How dare they? What what made uh what made a young Gail Sears decide that this was what she wanted to do? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, the young Gail Sears was in theater. Uh, I have a master's degree in theater from the University of Minnesota and spent 35 years in theater, directing, acting, um, writing plays. And it, I didn't come to writing until later. Uh, in my life. You know, and it's kind of interesting, Richard, how sometimes when we put our lives in the Lord's hands, he will take us from this track and just kind of like er, <laughs> move <laughs> us over to another place. And that's kind of what happened to me. I didn't start uh, actually writing novels until I was almost 50. Mm. So yeah, this is all my 10 books that I've published have been within the last uh, 20 years. So so I have to wonder, um, because there's such an immediate gratification that comes from being on the stage and being able to hear the applause, um, you know, as people sort of mature in that, it seems that they then turn toward directing and now to almost remove yourself literally in a cabin up the canyon to be able to, you know, to make these words that you don't know, at least in the same space, right. how it's resonating with people. Talk. talk me through that journey what what changed within you or or why from the front facing to the behind the scenes well you're asking very good questions <laughs> um you know i just think that when something happens and i've had a lot of serendipity happen in my writing of the books and maybe we'll go into a couple of those but um i i think when the lord directs you to do something or go someplace um, I think it behooves you to do that. <laughs> and and it's been a phenomenal journey. I, I never anticipated um, writing the books that I have and, and having them resonate with people. Um, I, it's, it's, a, it's a real true testament of what the Lord can do because these books uh, that I do are dedicated to him. It, you know, I, I have a saying when I go to book clubs and stuff, I tell people that I have no ego in this because people always think, oh, writing books, so cool, book signing. And I'm like, no, I have no ego because ego is edging God out mm. and I won't do that. And so if you follow his promptings and stuff like that, 
you're, you'll always be in a comfortable place. So was it was it a fairly? Oh, I don't know the best way to say something like this. Like, was it an utzing or sort of a heavy handing where you were like, "I'm a stage person, I'm a this," and then he was like, uh, "Gail, uh, I've got a different idea." Or is it Gail? You're not getting cast in anything. Talk talk to me about the literal transition there. What was that like? So interesting because I uh, I've I've done some wonderful parts in in theater. The last. Uh, the last part I played actually was Mary's mother in um, what's the name of the play? Uh oh, that they did down at the conference center. I was in the first cast of the Savior of the World mm-hmm. that was done at the conference center, and I played Mary's mother, and so that was such a phenomenal experience. That whole um, production was beautiful and uplifting and heart touching. And so, um, but I just, I don't know. I think the Lord eases me into things. He's pretty gentle with me when he changes my course or whatever. And he just, I had thought of a play that I wanted to write and I was trying to write it out as a play and it just didn't fit as a stage play. So then I started writing chapters Mm. of this supposed stage play that I was going to do. And it fit in that genre. So I just kept writing a couple of chapters and there was serendipity behind that particular book being accepted, my first book and published by Covenant Communications. And so it just kind of just eased me into that other other place. So that's are, are, are you a lifelong member of the church or convert? Tell me a little bit about your your religious history. Oh, that's good. Uh, I'm a Presbyterian by birth. Okay. <laughs> Raised Presbyterian until I was about 10. I was kind of an odd little duck. I I was very interested in <laughs> religion. I loved going to Easter sunrise service in the Presbyterian church and going to Bible school, vacation Bible school and memorizing the Psalms and everything. But I went to other churches with my other friends. I went to the Methodist church with my Methodist friends. And then I went to catechism with my Catholic friends. Mm-hmm. And I actually got this little pin of the Mother Mary. The nun gave me a pin at the end of catechism because I was the only non-Catholic that went to catechism with my Catholic <laughs> friends. So like I said, odd duck. Sure. Um, and then I went to visit with my uh, grandma who joined the Mormon church, the LDS Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when she was 65. Hmm. And so that whole summer, I talked Catholic, she talked LDS back and forth. And then she sent the, um, when I got home, I lived in Lake Tahoe. I know Lake Tahoe, right? Yeah. (laughs) Whoa. Anyway, when I got home that end of the summer, she sent the missionaries over to me. And they gave me a Book of Mormon. And even at 10 years old, well, I was a just had turned 11 at that time. Um, I read passages and things out of the Book of Mormon and prayed about it and felt very calm. So I joined the church, the first one in my immediate family when I was 11. Wow. How, how did uh, how did mom and dad feel about that? Because that's obviously that's obviously grandma kind of sticking her nose a little <laughs> bit where, you know, yeah. we got this, mom. Thanks. We appreciate this. Actually, they were fine with it. Mm. They, they're good people. And they, you know, they just kind of let me and my sisters go, go our way if it was not in a bad direction. So, yeah. How did grandma find the church? Just missionaries tracked it into her or something like that? Her son married a, mem- a member of the LDS church. Okay. And okay. he converted and then, yeah. Awesome. So uh, 11 years old, you're getting the book in uh, of Mormon and you're saying, boy, this is the thing. And then uh, family subsequently joined, or are you kind of the lone pioneer as far as the family goes? Um, about five years later, my mom and my sister joined. And um, yeah, my, my father never did join. Good man, but, you know, very Christian in his values and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. He's on the other side now and 
and probably taking a different look at things. Yeah. <laughs> we we give him the opportunity to look a little harder at it after he passes for sure. Uh, right. I, I also am curious, um, you know, a lot of people that, that I talk to and having a theater background myself, um, how do I put that delicately? That that can be kind of a a uh, a tough road to hoe and um and uh, and stay within the church and and some of the principles and values that we espouse. Was that a difficult experience for you, or or what was that like? No, I never found I had to make that sort of choice between a, a value that I held tightly to and you know, a production or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, I, I never, I never got into anything racy if that is. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so- and, uh, and I'm not, I, I know my limitations and I'm not, I've done some commercials on screen, but I'm not a good on-screen person. Mm. The camera just kind of doesn't like me. Mm. And so most of my um, things that I did from an acting standpoint were on the stage. So, and somewhere along that line, you uh, met your cute husband, George. Let's get the story, of course. Cute George. Well, I, let's see. I came from being, do we want to divulge this? Let's do it. (laughs) I came from being a hippie girl in Los Angeles. I'd gone down there to um, stay with friends and try acting and maybe getting an agent and um, taking some acting classes courses in LA and uh, actually lived in uh, San Diego area. And that didn't really turn out very well. I did, <laughs> my little spirit just did not like that atmosphere. And so I went from that to BYU. I got oh, accepted into BYU. <laughs> very similar. Very similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Southern California in the, in that hippie time and BYU yeah. for sure. There you go. <laughs> and my cute husband, George, from Manti, served a mission in Italy. Um, just just such a cute, straight arrow. And when the two of us kind of started dating, his roommate said, what? That's the, <laughs> that's the weirdest combination I've ever heard of. But it's turned out 50 years later, we're still together. So. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And so we adopted two beautiful kids, a boy and a girl, and, uh, you know, good. That's, a, that's amazing. Um, you know what? Let's take a break real quick. You had mentioned um, a couple of, of serendipitous moments um, as far as the around the writing and the writing of different subjects and those things. I want to get right into those when we come back. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. <laughs> bestdjinutah.com is a website that you need to go to if you would like to party with me. Now, just because it says Utah as part of the URL does not mean that it has to be in the state of Utah. I've traveled to such illustrious places as Wyoming, Nevada, Texas, Washington, and others, Idaho as well. If uh, if you're having an event and you think, you know what, I would love the energy, the charisma that is Richie uh, to be able to bless the event. I don't know why I said bless. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Maybe you, you yourself are getting married or has been the case multiple times this year. You are the apparent not a parent, just the parent, uh, or one of the parents, because there's multiple parents. I'm getting distracted. You are one of the parents of the bride or groom, and you think, Richie would be great to be at this event. You can hit me up, bestdjinutah.com. Be sure that you mentioned uh, that you hear it on the cultural hall. I may, in fact, even get you a little bit of a discount. Who knows? We'll see how I feel that day. It's bestdjinutah.com. Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops with breaking news. Windows 11 is now here. It's fast and it's beautiful. So let's make sure your computer's ready to run it. Bring your PC into any PC Laptops right now at PCLaptops.com. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember that you can become a Patreon saint by going to Patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. Uh, with your monetary donation, you can be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group that exists of other Patreon fans and uh, just be able to chat about these episodes. Now, that group 
is tangential at best. We do not really actually talk about the episodes. We talk about little things within the episodes that then make us go on rabbit hole searches down about other things. So if you're looking for a tremendous amount of substance, that's not that group, but we would encourage you to do your financial support for the cultural hall. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Now, Gail, uh, I, I love serendipity. I kind of think that it's, it's more God nudging or like miracles or like God showing his hand. Other people kind of do phrase it as serendipity. I would guess that you probably consider it more God led than just happenstance. Correct. Uh, God winks. Yeah. You know, these things that God kind of prepares that you just go, oh, okay, yeah. well, there there it is again. Uh, yeah, definitely. The, <clears throat> the one that's the most um, profound for me, when I was doing research for Belonging to Heaven, which is the book on, in Hawaii, George Q. Cannon's mission, <clears throat> excuse me, I... Um, I wanted to get a hold of his journal because he was a huge journal keeper. Mm-hmm. And I knew that he had kept a journal the entire time he was a missionary in Hawaii. So I called the main librarian at the church history library. Uh, I said, can I meet you? I have a question that I have. <laughs> so I come into the library, the librarian standing at the end of this long counter there in the church history library. And he says, how can I help you? You know, very (laughs) official. I said, well, uh, I need to look at George Q. Cannon's journal of his mission in Hawaii. And of course, he gets this very stern look on his face. (laughs) I like, well, what do you need that for? And I said, well, I'm writing a book. And he said, well, we don't we don't let that journal, you know, you just can't go and research with it. You can't just check that out. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's not three <laughs> yeah. weeks and then return it. You have to, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I said, well, and, and they were actually doing a transcription of it mm-hmm. at the time. So that's actually what I did use uh, eventually to, you know, because that's gold to mm-hmm. have that journal. But as I'm talking to the head librarian, I said, yeah, I'm writing this book about some of the first converts, George Q. Cannon's mission and some of the first converts in Hawaii. And this voice from behind the counter says, oh, Jonathan Napella. And I, I looked and I said, you know, Jonathan Napella? I said, because hardly anybody's heard of him. Right? Sure. Not a commonplace name within the church. That's right. So I look over and this fellow is obviously, you know, a mix of um, uh, Asian, Polynesian, you know, Caucasian. I mean, this beautiful mix. And I said, yes, Jonathan Napella. And he goes, oh, I, we know him well. He died on the island I live on. And I said, you live on Molokai? Because, you know, how many Hawaiians or Polynesians have you met that, you know, they live on Oahu or they live on Kauai at Molokai? Yeah. So he comes around the to the front of the counter and we start talking. He said, yeah, my wife and I are here on a mission. We've been here about four months. And he said, yeah, we live on Molokai and my daughter is on Molokai. And he said, are you going to go there to research? And I said, I am planning to do that. And he goes, well, my my daughter can show you all around. And, you know, I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, and you can stay in my house and drive my car. And I'm like. (laughs) What? You've known me for five minutes and yet you're going to, yeah, Tim and Donna Meyer, they, and he said, oh, this is interesting because he said, my wife and I are never out here in the front. He said, we always work in the back. He goes, I only came out here for five minutes to try and look something up. Mm. And it just happened to be the five minutes that I'm there at that front desk talking about my book in Hawaii. And Wow. So, yeah, that's a God wink, I think. Yeah, I love how earlier uh, you said, and this just affirms it, you're like, when God, you know, tells you to do something, you you, you probably should do it. And, <laughs> and, and it's even just those little things like the promptings of like, oh, you should go look this up or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe turn right here. Oh, but I, ho- left is home. Yeah. Oh, but I guess I'll walk and turn right because I feel like I should turn right. You never know 
um, when you put yourself in the Lord's hands in those even very simple ways, how you may have your life blessed or bless the life of someone else. Oh, it just doesn't it boggle your mind how he's in the details of your life. When that happens, you know, frequently and when you recognize it, because there are miracles all around us. And I just I don't think we stop often, off times and and recognize that fact that those miracles are there, even in the tiniest things. I mean, yeah. For for people that kind of have latched onto it, and this is how my brain works a little bit, uh, Nepella, Jonathan Nepella, uh-huh. I, I would love to know an interesting thing about him because obviously you did the research around him. People will lock that into their brain and go, well, you didn't tell us anything about him. <laughs> yeah. what, what's something that we it? would find curious about him? He was of a royal family in uh, on the island of Maui, and he was one of the first uh, Polynesian members of the church that George Q. Cannon taught. And he was um, instrumental in helping George Q. Cannon translate the Book of Mormon into Hawaiian. In fact, if you see one of the original Books of Mormon in um, in Hawaiian. They have one at the, um, um, what do they call it? The Church College of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. They have one of the actual first publications. Um, so he was instrumental in that. Uh, he, his wife, Kitty, um, contracted leprosy. Mm-hmm. And back in those days, 1830s, 1840s, uh, it, it was a death sentence. And so They would take them from wherever they were at. And here she was a a royal princess, so to speak, and put them into this little colony on the island of Molokai. Well, Jonathan went with her as her kokua, which is a a helper. He did not have leprosy, but he went and lived with her uh, in the leper colony. Mm. What a love story. It's just amazing. And he uh, he eventually contracted leprosy and, and died on the island of Molokai. But a phenomenal story about these people. So that's wow. Jonathan Nepal. Wow. I'm glad I asked that. Uh, you said that there was more than one, obviously, serendipitous moments with the writing. Maybe give us one more uh, serendipitous little God wink about something that led your research or something around one of your books. Okay. Uh, I was at a book club this one time, and I was talking about the current book that I had done. And I think it was Belong. No, it was Silence of God at that time. And the next book that I was writing was called Letters in the Jade Dragon Box, which is about some of the first saints in China, in Hong Kong. So I was doing all the research on that. But I was really struggling because I, I wasn't getting the authenticity that I wanted in the food, in the culture, uh, because that's something that you just, you you know, you have to have someone that has had that. And I wanted, I wanted some calligraphy done uh, with the Chinese characters. And I just was having a hard time. So halfway through the, the uh, book club, a woman comes rushing in uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm late. I wasn't going to come, but then because I'm late and that, that the last minute I decided I needed to come. So she comes in and she is Asian, right? Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of the book club, we're introducing ourselves and I'm talking to them and finding out a little bit about them. And she is from China. <laughs> she knows Chinese. She has friends who do, do calligraphy. Mm. <laughs> And I said, Sandy, um, can you please, please, please help me with this stuff in my book? And she said, oh, I'd be glad to. So she became kind of my mentor. And had she not followed that prompting to come to the book club, even though she was late, I would not have met her and had such a wonderful resource. You know, it's fascinating. Both of these examples uh, are people that kind of have followed followed the spirit and then come to you. Have you, within any of your writings, ever been the one that kind of followed that I'm just out front for a five minute kind of prompting <laughs> and been able to to put uh, yourself in that position for other people, maybe around your book or maybe just in general and and be willing to share it? Um. Yeah, I find 
I find that I get promptings kind of continually as I'm working along. Um, and and I have to be really honest here, Richard. I am I don't I don't feel myself very competent or capable to write these books. Hmm. I mean, I I have friends that are writers and they're brilliant. I mean, they're just, you know, I'm in awe of what they do. But somehow when I sit down and put pencil to paper um, and I just dedicate whatever I do to the Lord, those promptings come of even to, down to the words in a paragraph, how to put them together and how to, you know, form those things. And so for me, it's it's just kind of an overwhelming, you know, all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole kind of thing. I, I just get those feelings all the time. What was the prompting that uh, made you decide to write your latest book, The Sister Preachers? This is about the first sister missionaries, if I understand that correctly. What, Correct. What, what led you there? Um, well, I was talking to my uh, the managing, uh, the products manager at Deseret Book, and we talk about what my next uh, project will be. And I kind of had an idea of doing some of the first Black members of the church. That was mm -hmm. what was in my head. So we were talking about that. And she said, well, we've we've had other books written about that and articles. And about three years, four years ago, someone had written some books about that. I, I always want to kind of do something new, bring something new and interesting. And so I said, well, I probably don't want to do that. And she said, well, we're, we're doing an article and kind of a short thing on the first sister missionaries in the church how would you feel about that? And I thought about it and I'm thinking, oh, well, we're talking about the 1930s or 1940s. And I'm, I was like, well, I'm not real interested, but then she said, yeah, it was back in 1898. And boy, my ears just, <laughs> I sat right up. I said, what? what? Really? 1898. And I was in, instantly interested in that story. Yeah. These two young girls, 22 years old from Provo, Utah. I mean, their names are well known because their families were renowned in Provo. Uh, the Brimhalls, of course, George Brimhall. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Jesse Knight, who was the mining magnate who funded a lot of BYU stuff. I mean, you know their names well. Well, it's their daughters, you know, Inez Knight and Jenny Brimhall. So, yeah, I was, interest, I was interested from the get-go about those, those two women. And and immediately people who didn't know that and didn't know the time frame of when that was, their ears at the listening of you, you know, yeah. share that go, wait, what? So what? tell me, with the tenacious amount of research that uh, that you did, the tenacity that you went after it, tell me some things that you learned um, about these sister missionaries that, that would be uh, of interest to people that would drive them to read the book, The Sister Preachers. Well, I found several things interesting. First of all, I didn't realize that there was so much persecution of the church in uh, Great Britain at this time. You know, the late 80s, 19, uh, 1880s, 1890s, because uh, the converts at first in England, there, there were a lot of them. And they migrated and they came over to um, Utah and they helped build temples and they were amazing saints. But what happened is they had a, a man named Mr. Jarman, who was a dissatisfied member of the church. Mm -hmm. And instead of just leaving the church and leaving it alone, of course, he was this apostate who was so angry at the church. I don't know. Anyway, over polygamy, basically. Mm -hmm. that, over, the, over the disillusion or, yeah, the dissolving of, of polygamy or the no, fact the that the church landed in. Yeah. yeah, at the time he went away, the church was still practicing polygamy. Okay. And so he wrote all of these horrible things and went around England preaching against, uh, you know, the LDS faith and uh, starting these anti-Mormon leagues, they call them. And they mm. were in all the major cities where they would actually go and persecute because he he said, oh, the Mormon women are slovenly and, and you know, they don't have any brains and, and they're held under the thumb of their husbands. And if they don't do what their husbands say, they're killed. 
And so the church said, well, let's send some Mormon women over there. Wow. <laughs> so these two, these two young women, 22 years old, had to go into that hornet's nest um, and face persecution and uh, stand up for womanhood, really, um, and LDS womanhood as beautiful examples. And they were, they were both educated. They'd gone to university. They'd, um, you know, were well-spoken uh, from, you know, comported themselves well. And so that was all new to me. I did not realize that. And give, give me another something that I'm fascinated by something like that. And I won't put you on the spot or make you divulge the entirety of the book, but, <laughs> but, but these little nuggets of things where in conversation later, I can say something like I was listening to Gail Sears on the cultural hall. And did you know, and then I can kind of have that conversation. With uh, um, well, the other thing I found fascinating was the structure because they were the first single proselyting sisters. They had no kind of, dogma as to how to do that you know the church didn't have the standards that the tens of thousands of young women that go out now to serve the lord so lovingly they have these strict rules well they mm -hmm. didn't have those rules um they were good women and they you know kept standards that were amazing but uh one of the things that's interesting is inez knight had two brothers um ray and will that were serving in England at the, that time. Huh. And Jenny and Will were fiancés. <laughs> okay. So so when so when um Inez and Jenny show up in England, because <laughs> they were they were on their way to a lovely um trip abroad just to see the country. That's what their trip was all had started. And within two days, when they were called by the first presidency, that was changed from a frivolous trip to Europe to see mm -hmm. all the sites to a two-year mission in England. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, and so Jenny was in um, the mission field with her fiancé for, you know, quite, quite a few months. Yeah. Talk, talk about changing that trajectory on, yeah, on a dime, yeah. huh? <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Of course. Um, I imagine that some, uh, of that is woven into, uh, the book, the sister preachers. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a big part. So, so, so now I have to ask you, because, uh, we mentioned at the very beginning of this, that you were writing a newer project. I'm sure that you can't tell me the whole of it, but I sure am hoping that you can tell me at least what sort of historical, um backdrop that you might be setting this into <laughs> okay you you got me cornered here <laughs> um <clears throat> i have two projects that i'm thinking about one are the first saints in new zealand because wow. i like to do uh that's a fascinating story there were you know very very much god involved in that <clears throat> the other one is a complete departure for me it's a contemporary it's not fiction. I mean, it's fiction, but it's not historical fiction. Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm about five chapters in right now, mm -hmm. and it's um, it's about this young girl, 19 years old, who is the youngest, and it's based on a person. Not not the story does not revolve around this person, but. The, the genuineness of having a 19-year-old, the youngest college professor in the nation. Hmm. And hmm. The, the working title of the book is brilliant because this, um, this young woman is brilliant. I mean, she st started reading when she was eight months old. And, wow. you know, so that's, I'm, I'm just kind of dipping my toe in a completely different genre right now. And even though you have these 10 other published books, do you go to write that and think, what am I even doing? Why did I even think this would be a thing I should do? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because it's such a departure for me. And I mean, it might it might mean to I have I will have to go a whole different way in terms of publisher and I might have to get a an agent. I I've never had an agent I've been able to do. And there again, that's a. a 
tender mercy and miracle mm -hmm. to, to be able to have done the books that I've done without an agent. So, yeah. How much of, of the New Zealand project is you just wanting to go to New Zealand? Be honest. One to ten. <laughs> yeah, my husband's always wanted to visit there. Yeah. So. All right, George. George. Let's go. <laughs> Listen, sometimes we do things for our spouses. I get Absolutely it. Absolutely, we do. Yeah. But I am. I that is another point of interest for me. The the church and New Zealand and, um, especially in this day, in this time when this is recorded, the the prime minister of New Zealand, a former member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the interaction between the area authority, which is her uncle and her, and everything like that. That, to me, is a fascinating yeah. um, just kind of place in time as far as New Zealand and the church goes, plus the rededication of the temple most recently and yeah, and all that. So, yeah, get there, right? <laughs> We're going on a five, six week sabbatical. Come on, George. We'll get out there. Take that slow boat to New Zealand. <laughs> uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, there are three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you. Plus, we'll pick up a couple other things that we may have missed along the way. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can always send us an email, contact at theculturalhall.com. It's where you can let us know about other guests that you think would be great here in the hall. Uh, you can also give us feedback about this episode, like, I loved Gail Sears so much, your text of your email might read. Uh, you can keep it to yourself if you might say something like, that was the worst episode I've ever listened to. Just no one needs that. Don't put that negativity out there. Just keep that to yourself. Um, Gail, in the break between uh, right a few minutes ago and right now, you mentioned that you served a senior mission to Italy, which is also where your husband, cute George, as we like to say, um, he uh, served his younger missionary mission uh, experience. So tell me what that was like for you and like for him to be able to return after all those years. Oh my goodness. It was such a blessing in our lives. It George, um, of course, picked up the language again rather quickly. Um, I myself struggled <laughs> a lot, but I picked up, enough words to be able to converse with people. I couldn't have a genuine conversation, but, um, and by the end of the mission, I was able to understand most everything, you know, that was said. Um, it, it was truly a blessing just to see those young missionaries and the fervor that they go out with and the struggles that they have and that they just kind of, you know, trudge through some of those things. Um, that was just a, a phenomenal experience for me. And for George, we we loved every minute of it. And of course, you know, seeing seeing parts of the mission that he served, he served for a time in Rome, and that's where we were set was in Rome. And he actually, the last job that he had when he was in Rome was to find the new mission home because they were splitting the mission into two parts. It, at the time he served, it was all one big mission. Mm -hmm. So they had a part in Milan and then they needed a part, uh, an apartment or a building for Rome to be the mission home. And he actually found this old villa that um, actually who it, it's like a historic one. Cause who's that, who's that Gestapo guy that oh, I'm trying to think. Anyway, it's gone out of my I'll head. Go, I'll go there with you now. I'm terribly intrigued, oh, but I'm not, I'm not helpful for you at all. I don't know. It'll come to me, but it was for his mistress. It was a homey pill for his mistress. Oh, but, wow. Yeah. Wow. Mussolini. There we, there we go. I was actually going to make that joke, but I didn't want 
<laughs> no. Okay. Okay. Anyway, but they they were revamping it, redoing it, and George walked into the construction zone and said, "Hmm, is this uh, building?" He didn't know at the time what it was going to be available, and that ended up being the mission home, and it still is. Oh wow! You know, sixty years later, fifty-five years later, so. Anyway, that is one of the ways that I fell in love with the sister missionaries in in Italy because they, you know, they struggle and suffer a lot, and yet they keep right up with those elders. I'll tell you, they they're amazing. Now, what is it like? Uh, I would imagine that while you were there, the temple was either being built or dedicated <laughs> or in some what? process of that. What was that like? Well, it was supposed to be finished. By the time we were halfway through our mission, well, there were delays and delays, and it's Italy. What are you going to do? <laughs> hey, 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 yeah. <laughs> va bene. So uh, it wasn't finished while we were there, um, but a few years later, you know, they finished it. But we watched the progress intently, you know. So. Have you been able to go back? Because if not, okay. I was going to say, have. that is the way you get George to take you back to Italy. <laughs> right? Yeah. George, we have to go back and actually go through the temple with some of our friends. So, yeah, we have been back, and it is a beautiful temple. And it truly has blessed the lives of I, not only the Italian saints, but just Italy in general, I think, has been blessed by that temple. Well, and it's unique, as I understand it, um, for a couple of things. One, in the visitor center, that there's the statues of the all the original apostles, which you don't right. see in any other visitor center. And that's obviously to try and. Well, and the, the interesting thing is that the Italians that go through the visitor center, you have the big statue of Christ, the Christus, with mm -hmm. his arms stretched out. Well, one of uh, our district leaders was a young uh, Italian from northern Italy, and he in tears one day said, I can't tell you what this gospel means to me, to my family, and to the Italians, even though they don't realize it. He said, because the Italians don't feel as though they can approach Christ directly. Mm. They can't approach him directly in prayer. They can't approach him. They always have to go through either Mary or they have to go through one of the saints. Mm -hmm. And so when they go through that visitor center and they see Christ standing there with his arms stretched out to them, he said, it's very emotional for a lot of the Italian people to see that and to see that they can have a personal relationship with Christ. Yeah. And, and then also, as I understand, um, that there's almost it, there's almost like a compound, not like uh, you know, like a military compound or something like that. But isn't there like places that people can stay if they're coming to do temple work, and then also the sis, uh, the sister missionaries as well as the senior missionaries kind of live all in that same area, right? Well, there are there are um, there's the stake center, which is mm -hmm. one of the buildings, mm -hmm. and then there's the uh, visitor center. And then on the other side is what you said, this housing for the uh, mission president, for the temple president, his wife, visiting people that are coming to visit the temple, and then the temple itself. So it's this whole beautiful complex that surrounds these, um, they, they planted these olive trees, which are very, very symbolic to yeah. Christ and to Italy. Uh, and then this river running right down the center of that um, coming from the temple. So of course it's that image of the waters that rush out of the temple to cleanse the world and everything that are in the scriptures. Wow. The whole complex is just breathtaking. All right, I'll go, I'll go. Okay, I wasn't going go, to, <laughs> but now, now I will. You've convinced me. Uh, Gail, there are three questions we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I will ask those of you now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? <laughs> You're going to laugh. Mm. My calling is the ward historian. Oh, that's a great calling. <laughs> No, that and people and you're laughing, but I I was the ward historian for a little while. That is a hard calling hard. to do mm -hmm. to do well. It is, you know, it's harder than your executive secretary and some of those <laughs> other ones. I 
I'll tell you what, the only thing I that I like about it that I feel like is kind of a bonus is that you can kind of do it on your own time, but it is Correct. very precise, exact work. And exactly. they very promptly released me from that call. <laughs> yeah, and they haven't done that with me yet. So yeah. if if you could pick a calling, second question, if you could pick a calling, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh. Make one up. Hmm. Um, primary dance director. Yes. <laughs> you, I, I don't see you why know. we shouldn't. And I don't dance. I mean, I'm not a dancer, but in primary, those kids would accept anything, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. You maybe maybe to better classify it, you'd call it movement, right? Instead of right. <laughs> instead of primary dance. movement. Yeah. Get a little of the wiggles out. I'm all on board. In fact, uh, uh, I think we should make that change throughout the church. We have the chorister and you work hand in hand with the chorus, the chorus. primary chorister exactly. so that everything has some sort of choreography. That's great. Yeah. Um, the final question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, we ask you to interpret it however you would like to. But the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? I hope you can edit out this long pause because I'm, oh my goodness. I think it is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, being Christ's church established on the earth, is the easiest way to be able to have access to the guidance of the Spirit and to feel the Spirit. So when you hear the Tabernacle Choir sing, how great thou art or something and the tears start rolling down your face you know that that's the spirit and you know that it lives in the gospel of jesus christ um so i i think all the others other things are amazing and helpful but they're periphery they're on the outskirts of that those feelings that i get knowing that I, I have a loving Heavenly Father, I have a Savior who redeemed me, and I have the gift of the Holy Ghost that can guide and direct me. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, Gail, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next <laughs> week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.